0: You can see on the slide our four core values. Oh, Wait, I'm sorry, let me introduce myself. Some people may not know who I am. I'm Doug McAlpine. Uh, I'm one of the elders here at Melanie Park. And the reason we have these up here is I have the privilege of getting to lead us through the first of a four-sermon series about our core values. And so you can see them. Biblical truth, authentic community, genuine worship, and loving outreach. Now, loving outreach we're defining as living missional lives is the outcome of our devotion to Christ. We seek to share the love, hope, and message of Jesus as we cultivate relationships with others. The desire is to be a people who live outwardly focused lives for His glory. And so, that's what I'm going to be focusing on today: is the idea of loving outreach. Now, I'm not going to go through and explain what all we mean by loving outreach, but I'm going to help you personally step into loving outreach. Now, I know some people, when they start hearing that the sermon's going to be on evangelism and telling people about Jesus, get nervous. They may think, okay, another sermon on evangelism. I can already feel the guilt building up in me. And there may be some that hear about that and they go, oh, He's going to tell me to go talk to people about Jesus, and I know I'm going to offend people. I'm going to lose friends. I'm going to say things that probably aren't even in Scripture. And all these things scare me. Well, you're not alone. That's my response, too, as I start thinking about Jesus and telling others about Jesus. But God has given us a tool. He's given us a way to speak to people about Jesus. And the result of this tool will not only build relationships, it'll draw others to Christ. And so what we're talking about, and the power and the tool that we're talking about, is the power of story. Now, story is a very powerful thing. We've all been moved by different stories. It may be a movie that we've watched, uh, a TV series, or something that's been shared by a friend. I think that sharing your story is one of God's key tools in drawing others to himself. It can be as simple as openly and honestly sharing what God has done in your life. And the interesting part is it's not really your story. It's God's story. It is He who we want to draw attention to. I know in my own life, there's been lots of stories that have moved me, and been powerful to me. And for me, especially biographies have been a big piece. One of the first Christian biographies that I read that meant a lot to me was the biography of George Mueller. I don't know if you know who George Mueller was. He was a man that lived in the 1800s. God moved him to do many different things, but one of the things he's most known for is his faith and the orphanages he started. Now, when I'm talking orphanages, I don't want you to think just a few buildings. All over uh, England, he had orphanages running, and it's said that he uh, cared for more than 10,000 orphans over his lifetime. But his faith was also unique. Many times he would start a day and there'd be no food for the hundreds of orphans in his orphanages. And so he would gather with a group of men and they would pray and ask God to provide. And many times what would happen is there would be a knock at the door. Someone would have brought food or somebody would be given a gift. Many times just hours before the need was there. And so the story of his faith, his trust in God, moved me and really helped me step into trusting God for his provision. That lesson still stays with me. During college, I got involved with a group called The Navigators. It's the group that I still work for. Um, their founder is Dawson Trotman. His biography is called Dawes. It's the story of how God used him to start a disciple-making movement that continues to this day. You know, Since the 1940s, it's grown to over 5,000 staff on most countries in the, in the world, ministering to thousands and thousands, making disciples. And so it's a story of how God used him as one man to disciple a few other men, and then how those men moved to disciple others, and so on and so on. And so you know, it just helped me to see the potential of deeply impacting people and discipling them. And so the message of the book and the, my own experience of being discipled built a deep conviction of the need for me to deeply pour into other people. More recently, a biography I read is one called Unbroken. I don't know if you've heard of it or not. It's the story of Louis Zamperini. He was an Olympic track star, but he ended up being shot down in the Pacific Ocean during World War II. He was captured and then survived two and a half years as a Japanese prisoner of war. He truly seemed unbreakable enduring unfathomable amounts of torture and hardship during those two and a half years. It's probably one of the first books I've read that I had to stop myself from reading. I always wanted to read the next chapter. And with my reading skills, that's not normal. But what happened is I read to the end of the book, I found out something that was just mentioned briefly early on came to fruition later. When he was shut down and was in a raft floating in the Pacific, thinking he was going to die in the raft, He prayed to God that if God would get him out of this, he would give God the glory for it. The Japanese are who captured him, tortured him for two and a half years. But then at the end of his life, he was released, came back to the U.S., and he got connected with Billy Graham and told this story to all the people. And the unbrokenness of those two and a half years was not because of Lewis. It was because of God carrying him through. And so we see how God can carry through. And all these point me to story. There is great power in story to change our life. And I'm sure if I sat down with any one of you, the same would be true. You would each have certain stories that you would want to tell me. You know, stories are what God uses. Bible stories are some of the first stories we learn when we come to church. And we can see in a lot of the stories in Scripture that God uses people and their story to draw him to himself. Now, I want to look at a couple examples and then talk about the power of story a little more, but let me pray for us first. Father, we do thank you that you show us the power of story, and as we look at your word today, help us to be inspired by how you've used other stories to draw people to Jesus and to yourself, and help us to step into that. Father, speak through me. Use your word to touch hearts. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you'll turn to John chapter 4, it'll be the first story I want to look at. It's the story of the woman at the well. It's pretty familiar, so I'm going to skip around a little bit, but I'm going to start reading it at verse 5, put a little background to it. So, he came to a city of Samaria, this is Jesus, called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and jo- jo- Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. We'll come back to that piece. There came a woman from, of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that said to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water I give him will become into him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to me, Sir, give me this water so I don't, will not be thirsty, nor have to come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. And this you have said truly. And so we can see here that something special is about to happen. We're getting the story of this woman. She has five husbands and is currently living with a different man. So even in today's society, there would be some shame with that. But in this time, the amount of shame was huge. She was somebody who didn't want to be around people. You know, I mentioned the sixth hour, so that's about noontime. She was going to draw water at about noon, and it wasn't because that just is what fit her schedule. I think it was because she didn't want to run into anybody. She was trying to avoid people, and it's probably not so much the people she was trying to avoid. I think she was trying to avoid the whispers and the pointing and the lack of eye contact because, you know, as she walked through the city, everybody would look at her and point, and I five husbands, and would say all kinds of things about her. And the shame of that kept her away. And her solution was just, I'll just avoid people. I'll go to get water when no one's there. And even as I read the story, I feel like even with Jesus, she's a little reluctant to engage. So that's the story. woman avoiding people, quite a life history. Jump down to verse 25. We'll pick up there. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ, and that when the one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, the disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and told the men. Come and see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? So they went out of the city and were coming to him. So we can see Jesus is very clear about who he is. He doesn't mince any words. I am he. He declares he is the Messiah. And we can see that she believes it because it ends up in action. What she does is she then goes opposite of what she's been doing all of her life. She's not avoiding people. She's going to the city and talking to the men and telling them about what she has just experienced. And then what happens is people start coming. I think between the spirits moving and her passionate words and her saying, this man told me everything about me, something is different. Her struggles were known. She shared her experience with Christ, and people came to see more find out more power of story turn over mark we'll look at a, a different one mark 5 for my region friends who are at commencement same story that, that was talked about in the video and i appreciate the breadth that he added to what he said and i'm going to take some of his words so thank you guy in the video Mark 5. Let me just start reading verse 1 through verse 6, kind of set the stage. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken into pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gnashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up. Okay, that's a story. But we have to remember, if we go back to the chapter before, the disciples weren't coming into this in a good emotional state. They just crossed the Galilee and survived a storm they thought they were going to be dead in that Jesus calmed. So they would just experienced this. They get to the, store, the, the beach, walk up on the beach and go, oh, finally, land. And what do they experience? A demon-possessed man running at them. Now look at what all is true about this guy. He lived in tombs. No one could bind him, even with chains. When they shackled him, he would break out. He's constantly screaming night and day, cutting himself with stones, and he's running towards you. Let's put ourselves into this situation. We've all lived around Lubbock enough. We've seen cemeteries. Imagine standing in a cemetery, and this guy with no clothes comes running at you. You can see leftover shackles on his hands and his feet. He's bloody, he's been cut with stones by himself, he's screaming. What do you do? I know myself, I'm in my car and I'm out of there. I'm not stopping for several miles. What do you think the disciples were thinking? Uh, Jesus, uh, let's go take our chance again with the storm, get back in the boat and, and get out of here. But to me, what happens in verse 6 and on is interesting. Well, start there again. Verse 6, excuse me, Mark 5, verse 6. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. He was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out into the country. You now There was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea. About 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. And so as we look back and see what happened, Jesus is standing here, and this demoniac who no one can control, no one can limit, no one can stop, is running at Jesus. And Jesus stands there, and the demoniac gets to him and bows. He submits himself to Jesus. That would be a moment. Imagine seeing this guy. You're feared for your life, and all of a sudden he just bows down and submits to Jesus. And the demons in him ask for permission to be sent into the swine. And they're sending the swine, swine rush off the cliff into the sea, and they're killed. What's interesting, then, is you look at the, as we look at the next two sections, is the response of some of the people around. Let me start at verse 14, talking about what the uh, herdsmen did. The herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see uh, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who seen it described it to them, how it happened and how the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave the region. So they see this demon-possessed man, it's kind of like, yeah, whatever. Let's talk about my pigs. You've killed my pigs. You've killed my source of income." For a large number of these people, they didn't see the changed life. They saw their loss of income. They were worried about what happened to them. And so their response was, all right, Jesus, just leave. This is not helping us get out of here. But the demon-possessed man had a different response. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he, that's Jesus, did not let him. But said to him, "Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how He had mercy on you." And when he went away, he began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done, and everyone was amazed. So it makes sense. This man who had been healed, had been released from the demons, wanted to follow Jesus. It's kind of like, "You have changed my life. I want to give my life to you. I want to follow you." And Jesus' response to that was, no, go back to the people, tell them what has happened. Tell them your story. And he did that. And if you look at the end, when he told them what Jesus had done, everyone was amazed. So we can see two pictures here of how people had hard lives, a messy life, had an experience with Jesus, And as they just shared that experience, others were drawn to him. That's the power of story. Now, in that light, I want you to know, you have a story. Now, I don't know everyone here, but of the people I know, I don't know anyone that has had five husbands, and I don't know anyone in the congregation that has been possessed by a legion of demons. Those are nice and spectacular stories. And there's a part of each of us, I know at least of me, that thinks, I need to have a story at that level before people really will care or listen. But the reality is, if I walked up to any of you that I didn't know and started the conversation with, hey, do you know I had a a thousand demons in me? You're not going to want to listen probably to anything else I say. Or even if I said, I've had five wives, you're going to be pretty reluctant. But if we tell the story that Jesus has given It'll be different. If I walked up and said, I've had a problem with anger, or alcohol, or porn, or I've been in a failing marriage, or any of the stories that God has given us, you have people's attention. Because what has happened in our society is everyone thinks that they struggle alone. They look at Facebook, they see all the perfect stories out there and think, dang, I wish my life was like that. I see the junk in me. I see where I'm struggling, and I don't know anyone else who is. And when I hear of someone else who is, it gives me hope that I'm not alone. And as they hear our story of God, it gives us hope that their struggle can be overcome. So God has given each of us who believe in Christ a story, and he wants to use his story for his glory. I see a lot of that in the verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's a verse that a lot of people know, and Just one of my favorites. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So I want you to take this as a prophet. Excuse me, not a prophet, as a promise. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this promise can be true of any person. It's not saying, therefore, if if you've gone to church long enough, true, or if you're good enough, or if you haven't done any, haven't broken any of the Ten Commandments, saying, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. He is a new creature, not will be, not in eternity will be, or is working your way, he is a new creature. As I started thinking about that, I started thinking about what are some of the ways that we're new, and came up with a little bit of a list for you. In John 3, it talks about how we're born again. In Ezekiel 11, it talks about how we're given a new heart, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it talks about how the Holy Spirit indwells us. Romans 12, 2, it talks about how our mind is being renewed. You know, our flesh with its habits and desires still affects us, but now we are freed from it. We no longer have to follow its temptation. We can resist it. Romans 6 tells us that. So if you take any one of these changes, it's big and life-changing. But when you think that at that point of belief, all of those things become true, it really helps us see we really are new creatures. In Christ, we have been changed. You know, in addition, the second part of that verse, old things passed away. You know, everyone I've talked to, every believer I've talked to, as we start talking about their life, they get to this point and they can look back and say, before I believed I was like this, I believed and now God has changed that. Every believer I know has something like that. For me, one of the things that changed was lying. Before I believed, I would lie easily. I'd lie to everyone, didn't think twice about it, it was easy, just came naturally. There are times I'd even go and make, I would lie about things It didn't matter to me because I just wanted to see if I could get away with it. And that's where I was. But after I believed, God did something in my heart. Because of habit, I would still lie. But now, when I lied, my conscience pricked me. It's kind of like, oh, Doug, you told a lie. You shouldn't do that. And every time I lied, it bothered me. And so naturally, I started lying less. God did something. The old passed from me. Just to be clear, I'm not saying every word I say is absolute truth. But God has done a work, and I don't just sit and tell people lies face-to-face anymore. Aren't you glad to hear that as you're hearing me talk this one? <laughs> and so not only has God given us a story, the reality is the story is not pretty. Some of us think that when we t- our story is just too messy to honor God. You're looking at me and thinking about me telling about my change of line. that it's kind of, is that all you got? Lines number, like number 47 on my list of sins. That if people really knew what I'd done, who I really was, they would run away fast and would not want to be my friend. But that's not true. The reality is the worse our sin, the brighter God's grace. Instead of shaming God, it glorifies him. It shows the depth of his grace and the extent of his forgiveness. So, when we don't talk about what God has done, where he's brought us from, we're limiting how much he's glorified. You know, if you turn with me to, uh, let's see, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, is a picture of what Paul knew about some lives and some of the messiness. 1 Corinthians, I'll start reading at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So what he's saying here, if you look, It starts off, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then lists the things, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he's considering all these people unrighteous. What he's really saying is unrighteousness leads to these behaviors. Now that's opposite of what the world tells us. The world says, if you have the behavior, then we'll call you unrighteous. And so we, the world is trying to say, look pretty, look right, hide your junk, and you'll be okay. Everybody will like you. But that's not true. It's just not reality. We all have something there. We all have something broken. And so Paul is saying all these things come out of their unrighteousness. And so they're not believers since he's considering them unrighteous. They are not people of faith at that point. But there's hope. Look at verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. What that tells me is Paul knew these people well. He knew their story. You know, he makes this long list. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. Such were some of you. And as I look through that list, and from the relationships I have, I can say that too. I can see how he could. Such were some of you. But you were washed. It's a little bit of a nod towards baptism. And so these people had come to faith... And a faith that acted out and went into baptism. So they were washed. They were sanctified, set apart for God's glory. They were justified. No longer could they be condemned for what they'd done. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Our faith in Christ does this for us. He has changed us. Because of who has changed, then our actions start changing. And so if I've communicated what I've hoped for, you should know three things or be in agreement for three things right now. One, that story is powerful. Two, that God uses people's stories to draw others to himself, the woman at the well, the Gerasene demoniac. And most importantly, that you have a story that God wants to use. And so knowing all those things, the natural question that comes to my mind is, okay, so what do I do with that? How how do I move ahead from here? To me, the first thing you need to do, and I encourage everyone to do this, write out your story. Most all of us are not good extemporaneous speakers. We don't naturally just get up and tell our story naturally with great flow and purpose off the cuff. So take the time and write out your story. And one thing that will happen as you do that, you'll realize what God has done for you, and it'll be a time of worship celebrating what God has done. Now, let me give you a a couple of caveats. Um, In Genesis 3, verse 10, it's talking about Adam and how Adam hid. We start at verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, "'Where are you?' He said, this is Adam, "'I heard the sound of you in the garden, "'and I was afraid because I was naked.'" So I hid myself. So the idea of hiding starts with Adam. He was the first one that kind of ducked his head a little bit and didn't make eye contact, much like we do. But the story of what happened to him, I can guarantee has happened to each of us. Something has happened that we got exposed. Our sin got seen and known. We are afraid, either of the response of people or just of our own shame, and so we hide. We stop talking about it, thinking that if we don't say anything, no one will ever know, and it'll never bother us again. So as you write your story, don't hide like Adam hid. Talk about what truly happened. Talk about where God truly has brought you from. Second thing to remember is it's not about you. you know, I mentioned earlier how it's really God's story. Let me read two different passages Ephesians 2, 3 through 6, and then I'll do Titus 3, 3 through 6. So, Ephesians 2, verses 3 through 6. Among them, we too all lived, formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, With which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Flip over to Titus 3, we'll find a very similar passage. Again, verses 3 through 6. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hurting one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So as I read these passages, I noticed he, was, he talked about things that those people had gone through, some of the negatives, and then what God did. But what was interesting to me is that, at least for me, as I read those, by the end of the passage, I'd kind of forgotten what the bad things were that they'd done because the focus was so much on the good of what God had done in their lives. So as you write your story, you know, don't hide and make it a God story. Talk about what He's done in your life. And lastly, just as an, an idea, don't limit yourself to the salvation story. God has done other things in your life. I know for myself, I could have a story about how God has taught me that things don't make me happy. Um, I have a story about how God has helped me in fighting lust and all that goes with that. I have a story about how God showed me how I seek and continue to seek approval from man. My time in Regen brought that to light. And each of those are stories that God has changed my life or is changing my life. Each of those could be a story that someone else could get, be a from and be drawn to Jesus. through. So after you've written your story, I have one last challenge for you start praying, and ask God for a chance to share your story with someone. I'm convinced that you will faithfully answer that prayer. So write your story and pray for opportunities to uh, say it. So as I close here, let me pray that for us all right now. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you've given us a story. And it's a story that will glorify you. Even though it may not be pretty to us, it brings glory to you. And I just ask that you would inspire us and work in our hearts and allow us to take the time to sit down and write out what you've done. And then even more than that, that you would create opportunities for us to be able to share that story. Father, we uh, ask that you would use that then to draw others to yourself. Uh, Father, again, I just can't thank you enough for the story that you've given us in Jesus' name. Amen. I love that line, let my life be the evidence. So you have a story. It's not pretty, but God has done something, and what he has done is beautiful. Go share the beauty of your story with the world around you. So now, go share your story.